Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, May 28th, and this is the weekly market update. As usual, the disclaimer, anything that you hear or see on this video or podcast is not to be taken as investment advice. I'm not a licensed financial advisor. I'm just a guy on the internet with no formal investment training. I'm not authorized by your federal government to give you advice. Please do your own due diligence. It's your money. It's your responsibility. Okay, let's get into this. So I know Rick Rule is happy uh, because of what's going on in Japan, the announcement this week. Uh, first of all, you know, Japan, as I've stated before, I lived there for three years when I was in my military career back in the late 80s, right when the boom in Japan ended. So it was a very interesting experience. And I was, uh, I'm very, uh, I was very impressed with Japan. I continue to be impressed with them. I like Japan uh, for the time I spent there. Uh, but the thing about Japan is Japan has no virtually no natural resources. So it has to import natural resources from you know, other countries. One of those countries was Russia, obviously. And so with the whole dynamics in the world markets with LNG, coal, all things oil now, and with the sanctions and with just the discombobulation in the supply chain, you know, energy costs in Japan have skyrocketed. And actually, they are one of the countries that's front and center in the energy crisis. And so uh, we have this tweet here. It says, Japan is calling for citizens to do anything they can to conserve power amid a global fuel crunch. You know, heading into the summer, um, there's a view, I guess, there in Japan that they are going to have problems with uh, maybe even having blackouts. And so they go on to say, families should gather around a single television, said the trade minister. Uh, so the other thing, so they are acknowledging that they have this energy crisis, the energy reality, if you will. And so what did they say? We knew it was coming, and here we go. Japan is going to turn their reactors back on more than a decade after Fukushima. Prime Minister Kishida says that they must make, quote, maximum use of their idled fleet. And so that's what I was talking about. You know, Rick Rule's been talking about that as his, one of his catalysts for the uranium, you know, market. I, you know, this is just more, this is just another uh, tailwind um, for uranium, uh, bringing back these reactors. I think it's on a couple things, you know, like I stated earlier, Japan doesn't really have a choice with the price of LNG, with the price of coal, as I've pointed out before in other videos in the last few weeks and months. I mean, coal is becoming scarce around the world. I'm going to show you another slide. In India, it continues to be a problem getting sufficient coal for their coal plants. And uh, this is just going to continue to be an issue all over the world. We are in an energy crisis, and it's self-made. Um, with this ESG mandates and all this nonsense and political grandstanding. And, you know, we've basically shot ourselves in the foot. And so countries, as was stated before, if you don't have energy security, if you're not able to have energy that's ubiquitous and fairly cheap, then, you know, as everything else is a derivative of energy, you're going to have issues with, you know, life. 
uh, in mod modern life, you know, and conveniences and productivity and industry and everything else. As I've said before, I've been in third world countries where you're sitting there working all of a sudden the power goes out and you don't know what's going to come back on. It's not, you know, very efficient to work this way. And so here's a, just a chart that shows, uh, Japan's power plants, but this was as of March 10th. I just found this on the internet, but you know, they have some reactors that have been permanently closed that are going to be decommed, as you can see with the X's. I don't know if they plan on re reversing that, but there are, you know, there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I don't know what the exact number is, but as of the slide, it shows nine reactors that are operating. Um, there's another one, two, three, four, five, six, seven that have met the new safety standards and could be turned back on. And so then you have all these other ones that, um, that, that could be, uh, turned back on. So, um, I don't know what their plan is, but that's just, I think it's just, you know, regardless of your views on it, even if you live in Japan, right? I mean, do you do you want to bite the bullet and say, well, I ha we have to go back to this resource that we have because otherwise we're going to economically suffer. And of course, politicians don't want to suffer at the ballot boxes because whoever's on the horse is the one that gets blamed, right? Doesn't matter that a lot of these policies were put into place by previous administrations or previous governments or even previous political parties or other political parties. It doesn't matter. Uh, when you have your hand on the tiller, you take the blame. And so one of the things that came out this week, uh, you know, we've talked about it before, shortages and refined products in the U.S., especially diesel, jet fuel now, could be some similar situation with gasoline. And why is that? Well, because more than a million barrels a day of the country's oil refining capacity, about 5% overall, has shut since the beginning of the pandemic. Elsewhere in the world, capacity has shrunk by 2.13 million additional barrels a day. And so, you know, when we had the pandemic and demand dropped, and then you had ESG mandates, and so people took the opportunity to shut down these refineries, and let me tell you something, I worked in a refinery, I'm no expert on the refining process, but I worked at the Texas City refinery uh, for a power company and we supplied steam and electricity to the process units. I mean, millions of pounds of steam an hour that are used in the refining in, com, uh, process. And I can just tell you how big these places are, how much maintenance goes into them and what an effort it is to bring these things up and down. It's not something you just flip a switch. And I think, you know, if you idle these things and then don't maintain the equipment, there's a lot of rotating machinery, there's turbines, there's motors, there's pumps. And if this stuff is not maintained, you can't just go in there a year or two or years later and just say, okay, um, cut everything on, let's get going here. It, you know, there's a process because you have to meet certain standards. You can't just you know, for safety and reliability, you can't just, you know, you're dealing with hydrocarbons here. You can't, and, you know, noxious chemicals, you know, and the, some of the units in the refinery are, you know, literally bomb, can be bombs if they're not, you know, dealt with correctly. You know, I was at the Texas City Refinery in 2005 when the isomerization unit blew up. It wasn't a good day. So um, 
now we've got ourselves in a pickle because demand has come back. Demand is exceeding uh, what it was, you know, prior to the, the pandemic. And but yet we've taken refining capacity offline again, self-inflicted again, you know, trying to meet these mandates. We don't need to refine things here. We're not going to use oil anymore. Remember, remember that during the depths of the pandemic when oil was trading for negative $37 a barrel. Well, this is, this is fine because oil is going away. This is our opportunity to transition. Well, it's not going away. You know, I've been in these airports. I just drove back to my house from Houston and there was nonstop RVs, travel trailers and fifth wheels all over the place, uh, heading south towards Padre Island. So um, in South Texas. So I don't see it right now. Again, um, what I see is the oil price continues to go up. Product prices continue to go up. And now this is the weekend, Memorial Day weekend, when we enter the so-called summer driving season, when everybody starts going on vacation. And as I've stated before, go online and try to get a hotel room or an Airbnb or something in a vacation destination. Everything's booked. So, you know, you can talk about the economy. You can talk about you know, uh, people's wages not keeping up, but you can look at credit cards. People are going to have one last hurrah. People want to have vacations. They're going to go. They have to put it on a credit card. They're going to do it. And the demand is there. And um, it's uh, pretty impressive in my book. And yet we've idled uh, a million barrels of refining capacity, uh, 5% overall. That's, you know, at this is, Another lesson in economics that we've talked about before, you know, the prices are established at the margin. 5% shortage can create a massive price increase. And we're seeing it. We're seeing it. And so, you know, we talk about, you know, people say, well, the Federal Reserve is trying to engineer a soft landing or a slowdown in the economy to ring the inflation. If you listen, if they were serious, they'd raise interest rates 5% on Monday. And then you'd have, an, you know, 7, 8% Fed funds rate and the inflation rates 8%. Okay. That's how you do it. Of course, you would have a deflationary depression within six months and all kinds of economic and political upheaval in the country and social upheaval. There'd be riots and everything else, 27% unemployment. That's why they're not going to do that. Okay. And so they're trying, they're just, again, making this up as they go along. Okay. They're hoping that this thing rolls over. It looks like some of the numbers on Friday, you know, on the inflation, maybe it's rolling over. They're just hoping and praying on their knees. They can, and then they can pause, you know, then they can say, well, we're going to pause and see what happens, you know, and so they don't have to be forced into uh, doing what is really necessary. And so, you know, um, I'm not, I, I am shocked and amazed by the strength in the oil market. The, you know, I'm thinking to myself, if we didn't have the SPR releases, which are a million barrels a day, we would already be at $200 a barrel oil. And that SPR uh, releases, you know, we're at like 25 or 30 year lows in our strategic petroleum reserve stocks. Can't just keep doing that forever. So unless we do have a massive reset, you know, the bottom line is even if we have a recession and oil prices pull back, you've just delayed the inevitable. There's tip, there just hasn't been sufficient investment. Okay. And there's not going to be with nut job politicians talking out of both sides of their mouth. Yeah, we want you to raise production. And then I'm going to show you on some other slides, but we're going to, you know, hit you with a uh, excess, excess profit tax. So here you go. Here's Mr. Macron, uh, who just got reelected in France. I guess people in France want this. This is what they voted for, democracy and all that. He had a tweet uh, uh, 
you know, well, several years ago, but I want to remind you of this. Very proud that France has become the first country in the world today to ban any new oil exploration licenses with immediate effect and all oil extraction by 2040. This is what people want, evidently. They keep voting for it, okay? And we had, you know, uh, I, I, I don't know why they continue to do this, but they do. And so, you know, we've had other politicians saying similar things. And, you know, actually, there's not like huge amounts of oil and gas in France, but there is, you know, um, there are deposits there. There are deposits of natural gas and shale gas in the UK. And they've banned the extraction of those because they don't want fracking there. Okay. You're not going to sit here and tell me of what you've seen in the United States that you can't responsibly take these resources out of the ground. It's that's just, that's just, you know, that's bollocks. It can be done. And so here's this guy, another guy I follow on Twitter, Alf. I like what he says here. It kind of reiterates what I said earlier in the uh, video. Oil at $112 a barrel, despite the Chinese economy effectively offline for a while and global economies generally slowing down. Risk assets taking a bath across the board and record releases from the U.S. Strategic Petroleum Reserve. So what happens when these things reverse? Okay. Um, China's not going to keep their economy closed forever. They have this, uh, you know, Xi Jinping and the CCP, some kind of big deal later this fall. I mean, they're going to be coming. There's already talk about coming in with a stimulus, reopening things. Eventually, they're going to reopen. And then, you know, that demand comes back. And like I said, you know, um, you're going to start seeing, you know, liquidity at some point is being retracted. But if the economy slows down, you're going to see, you know, of course, you know, with China and, of course, the EU and Japan have not stopped their money printing. So, you know, what happens when the releases from the SPR stop? OK, and you're instead of three million barrel a week draws like you're seeing now, you see eight million. I mean, oil prices will skyrocket. And again, you know, I'm seeing I was listening to various podcasts as I was driving down here. It's a four hour drive from Houston to my house down here. and everybody's starting to pick up on the vibe about, hey, you know, what we talked about before, which is there's not enough spare capacity in OPEC and what the uh, Saudi oil minister said, which we talked about in the video last week. Okay, we don't have the spare capacity in OPEC plus to pick up the slack. And so, you know, that's what I say, we're in a full blown energy crisis in the in the context of an overall conflict and realignment of the world just does not bode well for serious and necessary investment into um, hydrocarbon extraction. Yes, it will come. Prices will, you know, people are doing, I mean, I saw some really cool Twitter accounts. I can't remember off the top of my mind, but these guys that have these small businesses, and I wish I could get into it because it's kind of cool. Guys go out and they rehab these old wells that make, you know, five or 10 barrels a day. Well, at $100 a barrel, you know, it's worthwhile to do that's $500,000 a day. The thing's just pumping away. One of the wells they showed has been been making oil for, you know, 80 or 90 years. And it's making four or five barrels a day. The guy had to clean it up and do a few things and get it, get it working again. But, you know, I just think that's kind of cool. Now, that's not going to solve the energy crisis, but that's what you're going to see, okay? And it's always at the margin these things happen. So these guys are rehabbing wells. The big companies will eventually, people will come back and start investing in new production. When it happens, I don't know, but it's the politicians are making it extremely difficult with their rhetoric 
and their nonsensical proclamations of talking out of both sides of their mouth. On the one hand, please invest and produce more of what we need. On the other hand, we're going to have, you know, excess profit taxes. You know, who, who, who sitting there as a CEO or in the boardroom of any oil company is going to be like, no, nah, I don't think we're going to do that. So here it is, right? Uh, tweet by Josh Young. Headline, UK to bring in temporary targeted 25% tax on oil gas profit. I did, read, I did read into this a little bit. There are deductions to incentivize new drilling, but this, uh, like he says here, this will suppress investment when more investment is needed, similar to raising interest rates to fight a supply crunch. Policy failure, exactly, okay? Again, the politicians can't, re they, they are concerned, as I've said before, and some people don't like this, and I really don't care, okay? It's your problem, not mine. This is how the world works. These politicians are interested in one thing and one thing only making sure that they get reelected. And so when a problem comes along that was created by previous policy mistakes, okay, and the hoi polloi start demanding that somebody do something, somebody, because they have no understanding of any of this either, okay? They don't understand the fundamentals or the root cause of the problem, okay? And I don't expect them to. People are living their lives, but at least have some general knowledge about how the world works. And so politicians react, okay? Um, this is excess profits. We have to, you know, we have to confiscate this. They'll do it under the uh, guise of we're going to support the lower echelons of society with these confiscations. Well, that's fine. Okay. I guess if you, that's what you want to do, but it's not going to incentivize new production because there's no reason to go and produce more. If you know, your efforts and your fruit of your labor get confiscated. You know, the thing that people need to realize is, is that these are cyclical situations and these companies that are cyclical producers of commodities rely on the fat days to make or the fat years to make up for the lean years. When the, you know, when the price was $37 negative, no one was talking about bailing out the oil companies when they were losing billions of dollars. No one cared. Okay. Now when they're making money, which they need to pay down debt and pay and put themselves in a financial condition where they can invest, we have the politicians coming out of the woodwork you know, to make, you know, get on fighting to get in front of the news camera with stupid policies that are going to do nothing but disincentivize new production. So here's Javier Bloss, you know, this is kind of how it works, right? Six months of UK energy policy. So the industry says we want to invest in the North Sea. UK government says, no, come on, guys. It's COP26, you know, the big carbon uh, goals for 2026. So then the government comes back and says, Russia happened, invest, please. It's telling the industry. So then the industry says, in the North Sea, well, maybe. And then the industry says, oil prices are high. We're investing. The government comes back. We notice windfall tax. So this is common sense. This is how economics works. This doesn't matter how you feel about it. It's how it works. Okay. And no rational actor that has a fiduciary responsibility to run these oil companies is going to go out and invest, first of all, you'll be fired if you come to the board and start asking to invest, okay, with the kind of conditions. Why do that? The zeitgeist in the, in the industry right now is to pay down debt and return capital to shareholders. That's all you have to do. It's cruise control, and you get paid millions of dollars. So what are you going to go in there and say, yeah, we got this big project out in the North Sea. I think we should go you know, take all this risk, get a harsh environment rig, go out there, deal with all this crap that we got to deal with just to drill the well, and then, you know, give 25% of the money to the UK government. 
No one's going to do that. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand human action. You don't understand the incentives, what incentivizes people, why they do and act the way they do. So tweet from Shy Girl, you're starting to notice maybe if you've been on this channel for a while, I kind of like get tweets and stuff and information from the same people. There's not like this, you know, a lot of these people are like, I would follow on Twitter because you get a lot of good information from these folks. Um, anyways, this is what's interesting. It goes back to what we were talking about at the start of the um, video. U.S. refinery utilization rate is 93.2%. That means, you know, uptime 93.2%. This is the highest in almost two decades. We are cranking it out. But remember, we're at 93% on a 5% uh, less asset base, right? So that's why we, even though refinery utilization is at a two-decade high, we have 5% less refining capacity, right? So you can never get to 100% because you have breakdowns, things happen every day in the refinery, a unit breaks down or you have a wreck in a, in a turbine or something happens on the unit, it trips and you got to go out there and, you know, so you're never going to get to 100% utilization. So 93% utilization is pretty good. But again, it's on a smaller asset base, but the demand keeps increasing. And so this is the dilemma that we find ourselves in. And so with this nutty schizophrenic administration that came into office, demonizing the oil and gas industry, demonizing fossil fuels. You've seen the video where Joe Biden, you know, is get, he's on one of his, uh, when he was campaigning, he walks over to that young girl and tells her, I promise you, we're going to shut down the fossil fuel industry. Okay. So who's going to, who's going to invest? Who's going to take the time and effort to go reopen one of these refineries and then have the EPA come in there have OSHA in there, have everybody in there, take all that risk for what? And then, then Elizabeth Warren uh, is going to be hollering and screaming about excess profit tax. No one's going to do it. No one's going to do it. Now, if I was king for a day, th this is easy to solve. I would, put, I would pull all these stupid regulations that don't do anything off, okay? I would incentivize it. I'd create economic zones around the refinery and say, okay, for the duration of the next 10 years, you don't have to pay any taxes at all. And these people would be investing billions of dollars. I mean, I would put people back to work. We would, we would be refining so much oil and exporting it. We would be a machine. We would be like, this is an opportunity, but they don't, you know, they don't think like that. Okay. Um, you know, and I don't care. I mean, but that's not going to happen in the current political environment. It can't. Okay. There's too many constituencies that want to get in there. Then you got court cases. Can you imagine some judge in Hawaii would block this? I mean, it, it's crazy. But pay the higher prices. Uh, my suggestion is buy, uh, you know, select oil and gas stocks. And, you know, so that you can take some of your windfall profits and, you know, negate some of the price increases. So this is. This is starting to manifest, and this is starting to get the attention of the major media now. Uh, this is another person to follow. She's pretty good. She actually goes out in the field and checks the crop conditions and stuff. That's Karen Braun. I like. I've been following her for a couple of years. She's pretty good. So what she say here? Lots of talk on what slow planting means for U.S. corn acres. But what about spring wheat? In the slowest planting years, 1995 and 2011, final spring wheat acres were 7.5% and 14% below intentions. Acres in 2022, the slowest planting ever, 
would hit a 50-year low with a 7.5% cut. So, uh, yeah, this is what I've been saying. You know, you want, we were already, a lot of these things are going to be blamed on the Russia-Ukraine war. Um, all that's doing is exacerbating conditions that were already in place before. We were already talking about a global food crisis. We were already talking about fertilizer shortages. We were already talking about the lack of investment in energy for, for the last decade. Okay. And so now all of these things are manifesting all at once and coming together. Okay. To cause a big cluster bungle. Okay. And, you know, it seems, you know, if you want to say Murphy's law, or if you're in the military foobar, all this stuff, but that's what seems to happen when stuff starts going haywire, it kind of, for some reason seems to all, you know, manifest at the same time. So you get multiple issues, right? And so the years we were having where we had excellent crop conditions, we're not having that now. We're having problems all over the world with drought or too much rain. Um, fertilizer issues. I mean, it's going to be a big problem. Okay. And then you throw on the conditions of what's happening in, you know, Donbass and the, in Russia. I mean, it's just going to be a mess. And uh, like I said, I'm not going to sit here and predict prices because I just don't have enough information. I, I, it's not my expertise, but could wheat make all-time highs? I fully expect all these grain prices to make all-time highs. And uh, it's, you know, it's going to be a windfall for some farmers, but you know, remember their costs have went through the roof too. And remember that in a lot of the developing world where a lot of farming takes place, people are not applying the necessary inputs, i.e. fertilizers. And so yields will be down. And so this just exacerbates the problem. It's not just one, one component of the equation is affected. It's multiple components of the equation are being affected. X plus Y plus Z equals, you know, a problem. And, you know, X, Y, and Z uh, continue to get worse. And so the, the, the final product of how many tons, millions of tons of wheat are we going to be short or grains in general, you know, is hard to predict, but we know we're going to have a shortage. We're already starting to see, like in Sri Lanka, what that means. So here's an article that talks about uh, this analyst was at the UN. Um, I'll put a link to these articles that I reference uh, as I normally do in the show notes. But she was saying, you know, the analyst warns world has just 10 weeks of wheat supplies left in storage. And so we don't have the buffer. We don't have the shock absorber. And uh, we're just going to have to see what happens. Uh, like I said, I, I'm, I have ordered, uh, you know, some food storage that can be stored, just simple staples like rice and beans in, in some quantity. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's prudent to have some stores like that. You know, um, I'm not a doomsdayer. I'm not a prepper, if you will. But uh, I think it makes sense because, uh, again, I've said in the past, I don't think that we're going to have shortages of food in the U.S., in Europe and places like that. But I definitely think because we'll just be able to pay the higher prices and then the, the, the stuff will come here. But uh, people in the developing world that, you know, all of their money or half their money or 75 percent of their money goes to pay for food are, are going to get shellacked. So. You know, and of course, it's going to be all blamed on Russia. And uh, but that's just one part of it. That's just an accelerant to a problem 
that was already in place. So again, I've been pointing these things out. There was actually a site, and I guess I'll have to put it on my Google alerts and so I can get, uh, maybe I can put together a spreadsheet or something, but um, because I only catch these in, in passing. But uh, here's another example of another country shutting down food exports so that it can make sure it has enough for its own population. Malaysia to halt chicken exports. Malaysia will halt chicken exports, the latest sign of food protectionism as countries move to secure local supply. Exports to stop from June 1st. The move will likely impact neighboring Singapore, which gets one third of its chicken from Malaysia. So there you go, folks. I mean, it continues. And like I said, I think I'm gonna start a Google alert so I can try to amalgamate all of the various news of these food export bans because somebody put one up on Twitter and there was like 30 countries already that have banned exports of various foodstuffs. And I expect that to uh, increase uh, as we get into this, as it becomes, you know, more clear that we're heading for a world food crisis, which a lot of it starts with is a direct manifestation of the energy crisis. And of course, you know, the politicians are just going to, who knows what they're going to come up with. I mean, they're going to come up with all kinds of dumb, stupid things that are just going to make the problem worse. So here we go. You know, coal consumers highlight spiraling coal auction prices, seek urgent relief. This is in uh, India. You know, we've been highlighting this. We've been having like nonstop issues with coal supply in India for a while now. And it's not just the only country. And again, you know, coal, the most hated fuel in the world, Okay, everybody hates coal, but as we say in West Virginia, when I live there, you see Walker Cat has big signs all over West Virginia, coal keeps the lights on. And so, you know, there is a way to burn coal relatively safely and relatively cleanly. Now the technology's there with scrubbers and electrostatic precipitators and all of these different technologies to, you know, it's not foolproof, but, um, you know, it's you got to use what you have. And it's funny to me that even in a place like Germany this week, they were talking about, well, if we have energy, you know, these problems with getting energy from Russia with the gas, we'll shift to coal. Uh, no discussion about nuclear power. I mean, you've got three reactors that are still operating. You just shut three down. You're in the middle of an energy crisis. You're in the middle of a political crisis. You're in the middle of a war. But you see, this is how wedded to ideology, you know, that these political parties are. The Greens came to power. Their whole deal, I told you before in another video, was opposition to nuclear power. But a real leader, a real statesman would make the case. Unfortunately, Olaf Scholz is not a real leader or a statesman. He's just a goof that got in there and he's not going to be in there for... You know, when this is all over with, the Green Party will not have power probably ever again in Germany because we haven't even got into the real suffering. The Russians are playing this very, very cool. Does anybody does anybody disagree with me at this point? Here we go. You know, no one wants to talk about the war in Donbass. OK, but I follow it every day. I have many analysts I follow. And guess what? Russia's winning. I said that from day one. Uh, it's not good to put timelines. I'm not going to do that. But they're winning. They're winning decisively. They're destroying the Ukrainian army, okay? And I don't know how far the Russians are going to go and what happens this winter, okay? They've played the economic war to their, to their benefit, okay? I just showed you last week they had record current 
or record trade surplus for the month of April. Okay. It's the, the ruble is strengthening so much. The Russian central bank had to cut rates. Okay. I mean, the, what's going on in Europe? Okay. What's the, what's the converse of that? Where, you know, you have all these politicians over there running around, nothing that they have done has worked. Okay. And so what's now the new one, they're going to send another wonder weapon. You know, this kind of reminds me uh, when I was, you know, in World War II, you know, that was kind of like the, the Nazi leadership and the propaganda organs there would talk about, you know, the stunning battlefield victories, but they were not victories. They were losses on the Eastern Front. And then the various, you know, wonder weapons that were going to come, you know, the, the rockets and these new airplanes that were going to be produced and they were going to turn the tide. It's the same thing that you hear from the propaganda organs in Ukraine now. And so what I'm trying to get to you is, is I don't think Putin has to do anything. Keep making incremental gains, keep doing what they're doing. Okay. And winter is coming. Winter is coming. Okay. And I don't think to this point, Russia has been honoring for the most part that I, unless I'm mistaken, I haven't seen anything to that, to, uh, to, to, negate what I'm going to say, has been keeping up with their responsibilities of shipping the gas that they need to ship. Do you think that when some of these uh, gas contracts come up for renegotiation, that they're going to, I don't think they're going to sign back with, with, with these European countries. The screws, it's like a ratchet that's slowly getting ratcheted down Okay, on them. They don't have to do anything but sit there and keep doing what they're doing. Okay, And the West keeps you know, fumbling around because we have no leadership we have no statesmen. We have nobody with a plan. Okay. None of their plans worked. Now they had, they had plan A that didn't work. The economic, you know, that was supposed to happen, right? We're going to, we're going to destroy the Russian economy. The Russian people are going to rise up and they're going to get rid of Putin. And then we can move in and, you know, disassemble the country, dissect it and, uh, you know, get all those, get the trillions of dollars worth of resources. Well, that didn't work. Okay. You got, you got judoed on that deal. And now the other deal was the military situation. And I don't hear, you know, I remember the guys, some of these guys have PhDs. They actually work in the Pentagon uh, as contractors and advisors. Well, the Russians only have two weeks left of tires for their logistics. Okay, that didn't happen. That was in mid-March. Uh, what was next? Oh, uh, they've lost all their tanks. Uh, that didn't happen. Oh, they don't have any more rocket ammunition for their MLRSs. Well, that didn't happen. Uh, nothing that the geniuses that supposedly have studied all this, none of it's happening. Okay, none of it's happening. The Donbass is collapsing. Uh, Mariupol got taken. Uh, and people would say, well, it took them longer. Than it. I don't know. I wasn't there. Okay, I don't know what's going on in the Ministry of Defense. Okay, and I'm not going to put a timeline. But I said it from day one, the overwhelming quality and numerical superiority of the Russian uh order of battle would overcome, you know, the Ukrainians. Okay. And that's what's happening. Okay. You're seeing mass surrenders. Now you're seeing, uh, videos every day of forces saying, you know, we're not, uh, going to fight anymore because we have our commanders left us. We have no medical treatment. We have no artillery and no air cover. And this is exactly what I said would happen. Okay. You would degrade the Ukrainian forces, their heavy weaponry. The Russians still have air, uh, air superiority. Um, and then you're just sitting there uh, wrapping them in these cauldrons and then using, you know, rocket artillery and artillery 
to decimate them, and then they leave. And the city of Lima, which was just uh, taken yesterday, I think, I mean, they, you were figuring it would take a week or two to clear out the Ukrainian forces. They just packed up and left, okay? And so it was taken very easily. And so I think what you're, you need to prepare yourself for, if you're a somebody that uh, thinks that Ukraine's winning this war, um, you need to prepare yourself that when an army collapses, it happens very suddenly, and then it happens very quickly. And I think we could be on the verge of that. And no amount of wonder weapons sent from the West is going to turn the tide. We've seen that, okay? That don't play anymore. And so the whole point of this is, is how far are they going to go? Are they just going to go to the Dnieper River? What's going to happen this winter? Are they going to, is Russia going to increase the economic war and say, okay, you declared an economic, you declared war on us. Now, guess what? Now it's our turn because now we have the leverage. We're going to freeze you to death. I mean, this is something that people need to think about. It's going to get really, really hot right now because it's summer, but in six months, we're going to see. Okay. And so what are these, what's, what's Ursula Vanda? crazies uh plan what's olaf schultz's plan what's macron's plan what's boris johnson's plan this crazy nut job he's talking about having an alliance outside of nato with the uk ukraine and the baltic countries i mean the ideas just become more stupid as we go on and this is not going to be conducive to clearing up these energy problems and these food problems that's the whole point i'm trying to make okay you're not going to buy Russian coal, okay. You're not going to buy Russian gas, okay. You're not going to buy Russian oil, okay. What are you going to do? Because the supply doesn't exist everywhere. Well, you have India scrounging around for coal right now. Where, you, where, where is the Europeans going to get this coal if they don't get it from Russia, which was their major supplier? So it's interesting to think about and ponder because it's this further political discombobulation of of a problem that already existed that's being made worse by stupid politicians and dumb policies. And there's no pragmatism at all involved. It's just double down on what we've been doing and hope it works out. That's not good. This, this is what the leadership of, of your countries are doing in the West. So I thought this was great. Um, it's from Arena Slav. You know, I interviewed her a couple of weeks ago. Uh, she's a pretty good writer. Uh, Go to her Substack; it's pretty good. But uh, she pointed this out. You know, Polish Prime Minister calls on Norway to share oil and gas profits. Norway should share the gigantic profits it's recently made as a result of higher oil and gas prices. Well, we all know that Norway is a tremendously uh, prolific producer of oil and gas, and has a very small population, so it's been exporting this stuff for fifty years. They have a tremendous wealth that has been created by the bounty of the hydrocarbon uh, that they've extracted from the North Sea. They have like a over $1 trillion sovereign wealth fund. And so, you know, now everybody's saying, well, you know, again, this is funny. I mean, Norway's not even in the EU, as far as I know. I don't think, no, it's not. And uh, so you have all these politicians now saying, well, you know, what's mine is mine. What you, What's yours is is ours. So I'll put a link to the article, you can read it. But, you know, we're seeing cracks beginning in the EU and in the European so called coalition of the rules based order, whatever the heck that means. Okay. Because um, people are going to start caring about their own, their own self sufficiency, caring about their own self preservation, because I got a bad feeling this is going to get really ugly over the next six months on the food and energy front. And so there's going to be a lot of finger pointing, 
a lot of uh, jealousies, a lot of former animosities that were put to the side for the European project that I think they're going to start coming to the head. You're going to start seeing some ugly things. And, uh, you know, you've got countries like uh, Serbia and Hungary. So we're not going along with this deal with Russia. And it only takes one member of the EU to, to stymie this at the commission level. So then you're going to see the EU and the commission start trying to change the rules, right? Because you think France, Germany, and Italy, and these countries are going to be stymied by Hungary or Serbia. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be allowed to happen. So you're going to see more and more of this turmoil, okay? And uh, again, that's not good for economic growth or for political stability. So we'll see how it goes. And so uh, here's something that, uh, you know, we were talking about before we've shown is that we've seen governments now give people rebates or start programs to compensate people for the higher energy prices to give, uh, you know, checks out or vouch. I mean, I don't even know, but there's been, oh, this has happened. And so what this guy is saying, Dan Pickering, who's an energy analyst, I kind of like what he says here. And I kind of agree with it because when things get ugly enough, which I believe they will, is he's saying is that uh, running out of, he's talking about right here, Biden releases SPR three times. And today saying we'll release heating oil reserve if necessary. We're running out of above ground options. The inevitable progress here is supporting the release of below ground reserves, otherwise known as drilling. Hide and watch, incentives are coming. So I've said this before, you know, I recall during 2008 when uh, oil prices were 147 or $150 a barrel, even Nancy Pelosi was beginning to uh, agree to the possibility that we may need to drill offshore California. And so these politicians, they are chameleons. Like I said, they're slippery and they're greasy and they care about one thing, which is staying in power. And if so, if oil's 150 or $200 a barrel and gasoline's eight or $10 a gallon, um, yeah, they're going to react. They're going to react. And I don't know exactly what they're going to happen, but I do think that this is what we're going to start seeing around the world is people, you know, uh, trying to incentivize more drilling and taking off, you know, you're going to see a whole, what I think is going to happen as a positive, as a result of this, this is whole ESG madness, this whole COT, CO2 nonsense, all of this crap is just going to go away because people are going to be really suffering and they're not going to be in the mood, uh, to be talking about CO2 levels and this other nonsense when, uh, they go to the pump and it's, you know, five, six, seven, $10 a gallon. It's not going to, it's not going to be, it's not going to work. People are not going to be in the mood for it. It takes time, but hitting, hitting people upside the head multiple times with a two by four focuses them on the issue. At least that's my view. Maybe I'm wrong. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Uh, appreciate the uh, following this videos out a little late because I had to travel today. Uh, but you know, as always, we make the effort to get it done. We get it done. Uh, so I hope that you're finding value with these. I hope, you know, just as a summation of this discussion today, I'm wildly bullish on energy and food. Um, some of the other things I'm a little bit more neutral on. That doesn't mean I'm selling yet, but, um, you know, copper still holding in over $4 a pound and supposedly the world economy is coming apart. So not saying it won't drop, uh, but some other things have pulled back. Uh, nickel, for example, has pulled back a little bit, but, uh, I expect that, uh, you know, as things get uglier, um, you're going to see governments start doing things uh, to stimulate, uh, you know, 
more supply. Uh, I don't know what how it's going to take place. Uh, printing more money, uh, incentivizing, I don't know. And we're also going to see a lot of dumb stuff happen. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see. And I think you have to remain nimble. But I think, you know, man, the oil rally is really powerful. And I think with uh, this summer, uh, we could have a blow off top, uh, like an intermediate blow off top. I really think oil could really make a run to like $150 a barrel. I'm not projecting that, but I can see the case for that. Just what I'm seeing anecdotally uh, from the information and things that I that I see. So wouldn't be surprised. Um, I'm still bullish on oil field services. I think we have a decade long, you know, we're going to get a lot of volatility in the oil price and the natural gas price up and down. But I think prices will be sufficient uh, if you average all that out to incentivize new production. And so, as I said before, the, the oil field services industry has been so atrophied by the, you know, went through basically the biggest depression it's ever been through. And so there's not the capacity, there's not the labor, there's not the steel, there's not the frac sand. I mean, you can go through any, any, uh, conference call for any of these uh, oil comp ex exploration production companies. And they will tell you that flat out where they're at that, you know, we got three rigs running. If we wanted to get two more running, it's impossible. We just cannot get the people. We cannot get the materials. It, it, it doesn't happen. So it will, this is an opportunity in the short term. I can see on a lot of the results of the oil field services company. A lot of them are having their margins pressured because the EMPs don't want to pay but inevitably, I think that there will be able to push through the price increases. And I think you'll see uh, a massive recovery in the oil field services sector and a recovery in the stock prices. I think we're going to see a tremendous run uh, here in the oil field services stocks. So got a little bit off track there trying to close this down, but just wanted to get that in there. All right, guys, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks a lot.